Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, With Veterans Day that was on this past Friday, I just want to take a moment and thank all of you who have served in our armed forces or who currently serve for how you've served to preserve our freedom. Uh, That is truly a profound debt that we owe to you. Yesterday, my mom sent me a photo of my grandfather. I never knew him. He served in World War II. He died when my dad was young, so I never had the chance to meet him. But it is a a profound thing to think about the level to which so many have sacrificed to preserve what we experience today. And by God's kind providence, in my lifetime, life in America has been fairly stable, thanks to those very sacrifices. We've not experienced another world war. We've had no major famines or depressions, again, in my lifetime. We've had a fairly reliable system of governance with checks and balances. We've had just laws, due process in court, available medicines and available medical facilities. And most of all, we've had and experienced religious freedom. By God's grace, we have been able to lead a fairly peaceful and quiet life the kind of life that Paul tells us to pray for in 1 Timothy 2.2. But over the last few years, we've felt the ground shifting under our feet, haven't we? We've certainly been on the downgrade for some time. It didn't start two years ago. But over the last few years, things have seemed to have escalated. We completely shut down our economy for months because of a global pandemic. That disrupted our supply chains in unprecedented ways, and now we're really starting to feel that backlash. To make matters worse, when Russia attacked Ukraine, that increased the global instability, it fractured the global economy, and contributed to the already growing inflation. The cost of food has increased substantially and is predicted to continue to increase. Recession is looming if we're not already in one. Energy costs are on the rise. Food shortages are likely inevitable because of the fertilizer shortages that are coming from Ukraine. And if you don't have enough fertilizer, you can't have as much food. And not only are we wondering what the future is going to look like economically, but as Christians, we're also wondering what the Lord's going to call us to face in the coming years. Hostility toward the church continues to increase day by day. We've seen how free speech is heavily under attack, especially any speech that condemns sinful sexual expressions. More and more regularly here in the United States, we are accused of abusive hate speech simply by reading certain passages of Scripture in our church services. When we speak against the lustful desires of the heart, we are accused of repressing someone's sexual identity. And that, in the world's eyes, is tantamount to abuse. We're accused of causing psychological harm to them. A harm that's worthy of punishment. And so it doesn't take much to see that the future that we face is a highly unstable and a very uncertain one. It's uncertain both economically and spiritually. So that begs the question, how should we respond? I know my heart wants to respond wrongly in fear. 
If the economy crashes, how will I provide for my family? What if I'm arrested one day? Who will take care of my loved ones? Will I stay faithful to the end? What about my kids? What will they have to face? And as these anxious thoughts just flood in, we're tempted to isolate. We're tempted to stop sharing the gospel. We're tempted to hoard our resources instead of continuing to be generous and meet needs. And the more we begin to realize how little we can actually control, the more tempted we'll be to give in to things like depression, to become despondent, defeated, maybe even cynical or angry. But as we're going to be reminded this morning, there is a far, far better way forward than responding in fear or anger. Now I say reminded because you already know the truth. We've been well taught, praise God, Sunday after Sunday from this pulpit by Pastor Farrell. We've been well taught in our Sunday school classes that God is in control. We've seen in Romans that this sovereign God fiercely loves us. We've seen that He gives us trials for our good, Romans 5. But this morning, what I want to do is continue to learn from Paul, but learn from him in a different letter. Particularly to learn from his example that he writes for us in Philippians that we read just a few moments ago. You see, when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was facing a very uncertain future as well. He had been imprisoned in Rome for preaching Christ. And he sat chained to a guard in one of the worst prisons of his day. He awaited a trial that would end in either release or execution. And I'm sure he wondered what would happen. Just like you and I would. Will my trial be delayed? Will my friends remember me and support me? Because if they didn't, he wouldn't eat. What else will I be called to endure while I'm in here? Will I get a fair trial? And will I be released or will I be executed? So from a human perspective then, I would say his future was very uncertain. And that's what makes Paul's response so shocking in the first chapter of this letter. If you're not there, just go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 1. His response is stunning. Although Paul's life literally hung in the balance, he wanted the Philippians to know that he was facing his uncertain future, not with fear, not with anger, not with despondency, but with confident joy. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul has been rejoicing in what God is doing right now in his circumstances. And we're picking up in the second half of verse 18. Paul shifts from thinking about his current circumstances now to his future circumstances. And he says, yes, and I will, future tense, I will rejoice. When he looks to the future, Paul says, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. I'm rejoicing now, and I'm going to rejoice then too. How can he be so confident 
when his future is so uncertain? Well, when Paul looked out into a future full of uncertainty, there were a few things that were absolutely certain that he saw. Things that were certain then and are certainly certain still today. A few glorious realities that burn bright in the darkness. Certainties that Paul could cling to. Verities that stabilized him. That produced hope within him. That fueled his joy. And in a biographical way, he presents us with these certainties because it's these certainties he wants to see passed along to the church. He knows if the church lays hold of them, like he did, that we too will be able to face these last days with joy. With purpose and with fruitfulness, making our lives count instead of wasting them in sinful fear. So in the paragraph before us today, we're going to learn from Paul's own example. And we're going to draw out five of these certainties that fueled Paul's joy. Five certainties that he fixed his heart on. As he looked down, or looked into, we should say, his uncertain future. And these certainties need to seep down into our hearts. They need to radically shape our convictions, what we stand on, what we live by, if we are going to fight fear and live lives of fruitfulness in the coming days. So what are they? Start with the first one. The first certainty that Paul gives us in this text is that salvation, our coming salvation, is absolutely sure. Salvation is sure. Verse 18, the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For I know, you hear the certainty, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what? This will turn out for my deliverance. These circumstances will turn out for Paul's Deliverance. As he faced a future of uncertainty, a future of tremendous pressure to forsake the Lord, he knew that this was certain. That he would ultimately be rescued. And we need to take up this same certainty as we, as we look toward the future, no matter what we might face. Now, as you read this verse, you might be wondering if he's talking about his deliverance from prison. Later on in this passage, verse 25, Paul expresses confidence that he won't die in prison. He, he says he'll be, he thinks he'll be released and he'll come visit them again. So, some people think that that's what he's talking about here in verse 18. But I think it's better to see this as a reference to his final deliverance. His final rescue. The culmination of his salvation at the return of Christ. That's because when Paul uses this noun, as ESV translates as deliverance, when he uses this in other contexts, he always uses it to refer to the salvation that we're going to receive, or we have received, through Jesus. 
He doesn't use it to to refer to a deliverance from temporary physical circumstances. He often uses a different word for that. So it makes better sense here to see that Paul's talking about that final salvation. When we're delivered in the future from our enemies, when we're raised to reign with Christ. But that might raise another question for you. You might be thinking, hang on, wait a minute. I thought we're already saved. Isn't Paul already saved here? Why is he talking about a future salvation? Well, we've seen this in Romans 5, but we see it again here. And, and, and yes, we certainly are rescued right now in the moment we, the, that we come to Christ. Paul writes in Colossians that we've already been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. But there's another sense that salvation... Uh, there's another sense that salvation looks to the future. It looks to the full realization when when we're raised from the dead, when our faith is no longer threatened, when we're completely and finally glorified. The Bible describes this too as salvation, or we might think of it as, as ultimate salvation, the full realization of what we've experienced already. So as Paul faces this uncertain and possibly deadly future, he sees what's behind it. He sees what's coming. And it's this full salvation. And you and I have to have that same long-range vision. When we think about the future and we're tempted to be anxious about it, we have to remember the glory and the joy of what's to come. Now this shouldn't be too hard to wrap our minds around because we do this all the time in in other smaller ways in our lives. Just hypothetically, take the week week of or the week before you go on vacation. It's amazing how many setbacks in the workplace we can endure um, to get to that Saturday that we leave for the beach or wherever it may be. And why is that? Because you know you're going to leave it all behind, at least for a week, unless you work remotely. You leave it all behind and you're going to experience vacation. But we have something far greater to look to than just a temporary vacation. We get to experience eternal life in the new creation. Resurrection life to its absolute fullest. The very presence of Christ and reigning with Him forever. And that will bring us joy as we face the possibility of food shortages, of war, of imprisonment for the sake of Christ in the days ahead. We will not have to endure forever. There's a time limit on it. And what's coming behind it is a glorious deliverance. A deliverance so great that it will far eclipse all other deliverances of God's people. It will make the exodus from Egypt look simple compared to it. God is going to save us. And like Paul says, our salvation is sure. But You might be wondering, like I do, how can I be confident that I'm going to endure in the future? How can I be confident that I'll even make it to that final day without forsaking Christ? Well, 
take heart. Paul addresses this concern also in this verse. Paul knows he's he's not able to persevere by himself. But he also knows that the Spirit will strengthen him through the prayers of the church. So we could frame up the second certainty like this. The Spirit will strengthen us. He'll strengthen us through the prayers of His people. Notice this is exactly what he says in verse 19. I'll rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, how will Paul be delivered? How will he experience this full and final salvation? How will he make it to the end? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. Paul knows that he's going to persevere through the intercessory prayers of the church and the Spirit working in response to those intercessions. What I love about this, I love so many things about this verse, but one of the things that I love is we sometimes put Paul on a pedestal. We think he's we're just unlike him in so many ways. But Paul was just like us. He had a heart like we do. He had to mortify the same fears that we have to mortify. But Paul understood his desperate need for the church. And in this case, the intercessory prayers of God's people. In fact, this is, a, this is probably a subtle reminder for the Philippians to keep praying for him. Because God's going to use their prayers, Paul knows, to help keep him faithful in prison. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? To know that your prayers and mine play a vital part in helping others persevere. They're part of God's ordained means for us to make it to the end. That's an incredible incentive to keep praying and not just to kind of forget about your prayer list. So let's make sure we're praying for each other. But notice that in the very next phrase that Paul says it's not just prayer that helps him persevere. It's prayer plus something else. It's prayer plus the Spirit. The Spirit is supplying abundant provision. And they go together. They're linked. The Holy Spirit will respond to your prayers and He will bring abundant provision to His children. He'll bring abundant power to persevere in the midst of affliction. Here's another reason I love this. (laughs) Because Paul knows that this this perseverance is ultimately not on him. Paul looks to the Spirit's strength. When I think of what we might have to face in the coming days, it is a tremendous comfort to know that even though I don't have what it takes to endure, that the Spirit will strengthen me in that day to persevere. This is what my heart goes to in the middle of the night when I wake up and I'm gripped because I don't know what my kids are going to have to face. I take solace in the fact that God in His mercy has given me His Spirit and that His Spirit will strengthen me should He call us to endure in those ways. 
And it's super encouraging to know that Paul apparently knew that he was weak in himself and that he depended on the Spirit too. And the reality is that the Spirit will not let the trial overtake you. He won't do it. In fact, in the Spirit's wise hands, all the trial can do is ultimately humble you, keep you dependent on God, strengthen your faith, and produce more fruit. When we look toward the future and we're scared of what we might face, we can know that our trials are in God's good hands and are turned for our good by the Spirit's power. To say it differently, the trials we'll face in the future are just like the trials we've already faced. The trials that the Spirit has already brought you through. These trials that are designed by God to strengthen your faith and not to destroy it. So then, knowing that we'll be strengthened in the future by the Spirit fuels that attitude of confident joy that we see in Paul's heart. Now, as encouraging as that's been, Paul's just getting started in this paragraph. There's a third certainty we find that's motivating Paul's joy. And it's this, that Christ will be magnified in Paul's life. Christ will be honored. And He'll be honored no matter what we face. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, he knows this will turn out for his deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. As Paul continues in this passage, his certainties continue to build. He is certain that whatever he might face will not be able to stop Christ being magnified in his life, and that brings him joy. But he starts from the end, and then he kind of works backwards. He says he's confident that he won't be ashamed. So what's he talking about there? He's confident he won't have to stand before Jesus on that final day in shame that he wasted his life in disobedience. That he squandered opportunities in fear. That he blew them in anger instead of being joyfully courageous for what really matters. The mission and the glory of Christ. Paul says he's confident that he won't be ashamed on that day. And instead of being ashamed, he knows that Christ is going to continue to be honored in whatever circumstance he might face, whether in life or in death. If Paul lives, Christ is magnified as he continues striving to obey Him and make much of Him. And if Paul dies, Christ is magnified as he shows that his King is worth the ultimate price, his very life. Now, as you read this, you might be wondering, how can he be so confident that he won't be ashamed and he's just going to keep on honoring Jesus like day by day? Does Paul 
think he's not going to sin anymore. Well, of course, Paul knows that he's going to sin and he's going to repent and continue to move forward. But Paul gives us the answer. How can he be so confident that no matter what comes, Christ is going to be honored? Because he says in verse 21 that for Paul, his life is not his own. To live, he says, is what? Is Christ. It's his way of saying his whole life is bound up with Christ. It's bound up with knowing Him, making Him known, and living to become more like Him. He knows it's progressive. He's going to go on in Philippians to talk about it. It's progressive. We strain forward, right? But that's His life. He repents when He gets off track. But Paul has oriented his life to a more noble, a more glorious, and as we're going to see, a more fruitful and joy-filled goal. It's a goal that's far greater than his own measly self-seeking ambitions to preserve his life. He's traded all that in for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. You see, Paul wasn't scared of the future, come what may, because whatever the future brought, get this, it could not undermine the central goal of his life. Whether he lived or whether he was executed, both brought amazing opportunities to bring Christ glory. That's how he thought. So you have to ask yourself, is that actually your greatest goal? Is your life actually Christ? You might say, Clay, I I want to say that that's my goal. Hope is my goal, but I'm not sure. How, How would I know? Well, one test would be how you respond to these future uncertainties. Right? Are you crippled with fear? Are you depressed and defeated? Do you seethe with resentment at what's happening around you? It may reveal that you've strayed off track. Perhaps for you, to live isn't Christ but it, at this moment, but it's to make money. And when that's threatened, you get angry. Or to live is to care for your family. And if that's threatened, you're paralyzed with fear. Or it could be that your life is to pursue pleasure. And when that's threatened, you're depressed and you're despondent. Many of these things are wonderful goals. Take care of your family. Make money. They're just not the ultimate goal. The goal that transcends and informs all the other goals. Christ's honor and Christ's mission. Knowing Him. And perhaps in this moment, Christ is calling you to repentance. To realign with His higher vision for your life. A a vision that you had once embraced, but have kind of gotten caught up in, in an alternative vision.
Christ wants you to realign with this higher calling. You are an emissary of the King of Heaven. You are a citizen of Heaven as you make money, as you care for your family, and even in your leisure. But maybe you're here this morning and Christ has never been the ultimate goal of your life. Maybe you're sitting here saying, Clay, yeah, I mean, as you're you're saying this, I'm realizing that I don't live for Christ. To live is not Christ. Maybe you've used Him as a means to an end. A means to get that ultimate goal, whatever that may be. If that's you, let me encourage you. It was this very text that the Lord used to expose my religious hypocrisy. When I read this paragraph as a freshman in college, I had never heard anyone talk like this. I knew that I did not have what Paul was describing here. And by God's grace, he stopped me in my tracks and he put me on a path to know the true Christ. Is that you this morning? Are these circumstances that are pressing in as you look to the future, revealing an anxious heart that's never truly trusted Jesus? If so, this is a mercy for you right now. We would love to help you come to know and live for the true Christ. And you can trust Him in this moment. You can trust the One who gives us confidence in life and joy in death. You can trust Him today. Because you see, until we can say that our ultimate goal is Christ, we will not be able to face the future like Paul. But when Christ is our life, when living for His glory is our ultimate pervasive goal in all our spheres of life, something amazing happens. And you know it. You begin to realize that Christ can and will be magnified no matter what comes. You begin to realize that fruit awaits in every hardship. As this reality starts to settle in, you'll find tremendous stability in your life. Tremendous joy, even in the face of adversity. Why is that? Because of how God can work in it and through it. And it's crucial to remember that God is not working in spite of our challenges. As though our challenges are kind of a roadblock that God has to provide a detour around. God is working even more in and through the challenges. So Paul says in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, i.e. his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. That is, that is tremendous. That's a tremendous thought. Why? Because Paul was free before this. Paul was running around preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he's saying, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel all the more. This is a choice God made. This is not a choice of the Romans to enslave me. This was God's choice. A Trojan horse right in the midst of the enemy army. God is not working in spite of the challenges. He's working even more in and through them. 
Do you realize if we have some type of economic collapse in the U.S., that our church will have untold opportunities to put Christ's glory on display, to testify to the Gospel in untold ways, to meet each other's needs in ways that we've not even dreamed of doing yet. Do you realize if our religious freedoms are undermined, and we pray against that, but do you realize if they are, and the government cracks down on us, that we will have a chance like never before to testify to the glory and the worth of Christ. None of us want that to come for us or for our children's sake. But if God does bring it, if God does count us worthy to suffer for the name, does that not spark something inside you? As we think about what the Lord might do, the kind of advancement we might see, we'll get the privilege of watching God's providential hand at work even more through us. I mean, just take the shutdown. COVID-19 for any, just as a, as a small example. That was a brutal season. But coming out of that, our resolve as a church was strengthened. We decided to reopen, come what may, because we knew the gathering was essential. We saw so many people come to Jesus for the first time through the exposure of their fears, through the isolation. So many hungry sheep were relocated to faithful churches. And this is likely just the beginning of a drastic increase of fruit in the United States. So when Christ becomes our life, then we can be certain that no matter what we face, Christ will be honored. And that produces joy. But you might be thinking, how can Paul face even death with that kind of joy? Well, it's because of a fourth certainty that this passage shows us. And it's this. That death is far better than this life. Death is far better than this life. For to me, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. As we read these verses, Paul's perspective is almost shocking, even to us as Christians. For Paul, death was not the end. Death was the necessary portal to something, or to better, someone greater. And his view of what's on the other side of the door of death, that produced not just boldness, but incredible joy in the face of his execution. So again, let's quickly just unpack a few of these statements Paul makes here about death. And they reveal how he's thinking about it. And these are the kind of perspectives we've got to adopt too if we don't have them already. Paul says here, like we just read, that to die is gain. Verse 21. 
For death to be gain means it's more profitable. It's more valuable. That's what he means. It's gain. It flies in the face of how everyone on the planet thinks about death and approaches it. Death is not gain for most people. Death is a terror, and understandably so. We weren't created to die. Death was a punishment. It's unnatural. And for those outside of Christ, they have no idea what's awaiting them. Although in their hearts, they know they're guilty. They're suppressing that. They know they're going to have to give some kind of account. But for Paul and for every believer here today, death represents an inestimable gain. But we're tempted to think about it in the opposite. We're tempted to think that life is gain. And death is something we have to experience and it's some kind of lesser existence. But Paul says down in verse 23 that death is far better. I mean, it's superlative language. Like he's, he's grabbing the highest language you can get. It is far better than life. And yet, we often fear, I know I do at times, fear leaving it behind. We were at a conference last weekend and a pastor there by the name of Rick Holland, he taught this text actually and he said it would be like an engaged couple saying they don't want to get married because they love engagement so much. They just want to stay engaged. They don't want to miss any of the experiences of engagement. So just not worried about getting married. In fact, they prefer to stay engaged. And that you know, obviously makes no sense, but that's what we say. We often fear missing out on some of the good experiences or, or milestones of this life. As though the next life is far less than this one. But the moment we die, Paul says, our state dramatically increases. It's an unbelievable gain for us. And that's because at the heart of it, Paul says, we are with Christ. Verse 23, to die is to be with Christ. Death takes us to meet our Savior face to face. It holds our hand and, and, and takes us to the great Lover of our souls. To our greatest friend and our most glorious King. Church, no one loves you better. No one knows you more than your Savior. In fact, this King has known you forever. Before you were ever born, He lovingly planned out the details of your life. He created you for Himself. He designed you purposefully and intentionally. He pursued you when you were dead. He personally walked with you every step of your life up to this point. He's cried with you when your heart has broken. He has rejoiced with you when you have been elated. You cannot even begin, Paul says, to comprehend how much He loves you, Ephesians 3. 
it surpasses knowledge. And it's this one. It's this Savior. It's this friend. This God that death brings you to. Yes, Christ is with us now through His Spirit, but Paul knows this is not the fullest experience. This is not our fullest joy. This is not our greatest existence. It's not our best moment. It is coming. It's coming when we see Him face to face. It's coming when we sit and talk with Him in the kingdom. It's coming when He resurrects us and takes us through His kingdom and shares with us the richness of His new creation. And we take dominion of it. So when it comes to death, how do you think about it? Are you afraid of it? Christ has defamed the beast. Christ has rendered him unable to harm you. You have nothing to fear because death is the portal to something far better. As we adopt this perspective, as we learn to quell our fears with this kind of renewed thinking, what we'll see growing in its place is a rising zeal. We'll be bold in life because if the worst happens to us, if we die, it's only a gain. We'll also rejoice because we'll know that the worst circumstances will turn out for our greatest good. Our greatest gain in existence is far better with Christ. Now, as significant as this is, Paul didn't just have an incredible and glorious perspective of death. He also had a similarly glorious perspective of this life. And that leads us to our fifth and final certainty. More life, Paul says, it means more fruit. More life means more spiritual fruit. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means, verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Down in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So for Paul, even though death was far better, he describes in these verses an incredible tension in his heart. Even though he would rather be with Christ, he also knew that this life was valuable, not because it's better than what's coming, it's not, but because there is a unique opportunity for fruit right now. As we're going to see, the fruit is guaranteed. And when that reality sinks in, we're going to find that we face the future with joy. Because the future, even in an economic collapse, even in a persecution, that means more spiritual fruit. So let's just quickly take a look at the ways that Paul describes his perspective on this life so that we can adopt those as ours as well if we haven't already. He says, to live means fruitful labor in verse 22. Paul knew that if he went on living in this life, there would be eternal fruit. Now that almost sounds arrogant, kind of at first blush, but he's so confident that if he stays alive, there's going to be fruit. It's like an equation. Life equals fruit. 
But he's not confident in himself. Paul's confident in Christ's ability to produce fruit through him. Christ has promised to produce these spiritual benefits through us as we yield to him in faith and obedience. So what fruit are we talking about? Well, I think in this context, in Paul's mind, he's envisioning people as fruit. Both their conversion and, and maybe even, probably more so in this context, their maturation, their maturity, their growth in Jesus, their growth in Christ. He knows if he's left here, there will be a harvest in one way or another, whether he sees it or not. So think of how motivating that is. The guarantee of a harvest in your life and in the lives of those that you influence. It motivates faithfulness in those, what we call the mundane areas of life, which are actually, by the way, the most glorious arenas for us. Those arenas like when you seek to disciple your kids, as you invest in the lives of others in the church, as you open your mouth to share the gospel, as you have people over and show them hospitality. These are the arenas that Christ promises to produce fruit in. He has promised a glorious yield. Paul knew that. He knew that more life meant fruit. It means fruitful labor. He also knew that to live is often more necessary for others. He talks about this in verses 24 and 25. To live is often more necessary for others. There's a, there's a reality that for Paul, part of what keeps him wanting to stay here is the responsibility that he feels for other people. He would rather be with Christ, he says, but he's willing to give that up. He's willing to give it up for the good of the Philippians. That's an incredible thought. And specifically, it was to be for the maturation of other Christians. Paul was willing to be left here in enemy territory, so to speak, to be able to help others grow. That's what he means when he says he's going to stay with them for their progress and joy in the faith. Is that why you want to stick around on this earth instead of going to be with Christ? Do you want to stay for more fruit? Often our desires are more oriented around us, aren't they? We want to stick around so that we can get married and have kids, or get those kids married, or get those kids having kids, right? All good and wonderful things, blessings that God has designed and woven into the fabric of our life here on earth. But for Paul, what motivated him to stay was the spiritual flourishing of others. As a husband and a father then, my main motivation to stay should be for the spiritual flourishing of my wife and children. As a pastor and a church member, it should be for the flourishing of those in my church. In a career or as a homemaker, it should be to see spiritual fruit in and through those roles, both in your own life and in the lives of others. There's nothing wrong with wanting good experiences. But we have to remember that to live is Christ. And our greatest experiences are yet to come. There is, believe it or not, college student, a greater joy than marriage. There is a greater joy than children. There is 
getting controversial, a greater joy than grandchildren. You say, he doesn't know. He doesn't have those yet. And great-grandchildren. There's, there's greater joy. And it's coming. And so then, the greatest motivation for us to stick around is the opportunity to help others flourish. To bring others with us to the new creation. That's fruit. And it abounds to the glory of Christ. So as we wrap up, I want you to think about this. As Paul sat there in a dark and disease-ridden prison, as he sat there chained to a Roman guard, as he contemplated a wildly uncertain future, he could tell the Philippians, verse 18, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Although much is uncertain, these truths are not. They are as sure as they were for Paul. They are as sure as the sunrise for each of us in Christ today as we face our own uncertain future. And as we embrace these certainties by faith, do you know what's going to happen? You say, joy. Yeah, that's true. But something else is going to happen. The same kind of things that happened to Paul. Since he wasn't afraid to die, you know what he did? He opened his mouth and he shared the gospel with the prison guards that could have killed him on the spot. You know what that did? Some of those prison guards got saved. You know what they did? They told more prison guards. To the point that the whole imperial army knew why Paul was there. Do you know what that did? There was a church in Rome, and they were afraid. Nero, it's a crazy guy. And Paul's example set them ablaze for the glory of God in Christ to share the gospel in Rome. He says they were much more eager to share the gospel without fear because of Paul's own example. So if these certainties seep into your heart, you will be truly liberated for the mission. Even in this hostile environment, you will be truly useful to Christ And He will use you for an abundant harvest right here in Lynchburg, right here at Timberlake, right here in your Sunday school class, right here in your family. And that is a well-lived life. That is a life without regret, or as Paul says, a life without shame when we stand before the great lover of our souls. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.